0: Amen. Well, good morning. Mm -hmm. Two of you. Rest of you, terrible morning. I can tell. Let's try that again. Good morning. Ah, there we go. There it is. That was... Better than asking folks to pray sometimes. So you've looked up, you said good morning, that was good, I'll take it. Uh, it is good to see you, happy to have you here. If we have not met yet, hello, my name is Johnny, lead pastor here at Southside Baptist Church. I am thankful that you're here, thankful that you're with us. Uh, by God's grace, we are together again, and uh, many of you who have been with us any period of time are probably excited for this day. You've probably marked this day on your calendar, uh, for this is the day that we wrap up First Peter. Um, we have been, some of you are laughing and going, praise the Lord. Uh, I don't know how I should feel about that. I'm going to take that as a word of affirmation and encouragement. Uh, but we do find ourselves closing out our series this morning in First Peter chapter 5, looking at Peter's final words, his final counsel in his first letter uh, to the elect exiles. And as you're finding your place in First Peter Chapter 5, I want to uh, just present a question to you, if you will. Now, again, we have walked through a good deal of information that Peter was passing along to the elect exiles that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Now, if you've been following along with the structure of this letter, you noticed that in our first couple of chapters, we spent a good bit of time uh, reading Peter's words as he sought to encourage a people who were preparing for hardship. And then as we jumped later in the first Peter three and in the four and in the first part of five, we began to see this persecution and suffering begin to pick up to a point where Peter turns from encouraging the church to then sharing with them and teaching them on how they are now called to live in light of what's been going on. And so there's been a lot of persecution language, a lot of suffering language. In fact, several of you have asked, uh, are we ever going to move past the persecution language and the suffering language? And I would say, uh, great question, easy question for us to ask living in Western society where we're not facing persecution. But again, I would remind you to think of what it must have been like to be an elect exile reading the words of Peter, uh, because they were probably asking, when will the suffering end? Well, today we get to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we see Peter offering yet again another word of encouragement as he closes out this letter, and as we read it together, I want to ask you this question. What would you say, or what would you want to hear from a leader, particularly your leader, or if you were the leader, what would you say as you walk with someone who is experiencing extreme pain? I mean, here's the truth we all know someone who's walked through hardship. We all know someone who's walked through some sort of grief or someone who's walked through some sort of painful trial, and oftentimes we find ourselves in the midst of a situation where we seek to find the right words to say to someone who is experiencing experiencing this pain or this grief or loss or even heartache. In fact, in the midst of wanting to say something right, which is what we are in the habit of doing, oftentimes we can say the wrong thing. And then hopefully in God's grace, the people will just forgive us of that. Well, In our text, as Peter is closing out his first letter, a letter written for the purpose of encouraging the exiles to keep living, he encourages them as well to keep good conduct. And then he finally says to them to continue to praise God in the midst of persecution. Now, this would be important because stories were beginning to spread throughout the Roman Empire, especially amongst the churches and amongst the Christians, of the pain that other Christians were being uh, exposed to and they were experiencing firsthand. In fact, being called a Christian at this point was more of a a mockery than it was a a word of celebration. And so as fears and tensions continued to rise, it was the believers in Jesus Christ during Peter's day who remained resolute in standing by their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I think for us today, it is safe to say that right here in this last chapter, Peter is writing... His closing counsel to those who are taking the greatest risk. Those who are taking a risk that we do not understand today. You see, for these particular pe- uh, exiles, these, these particular believers, these Christians that Peter is writing to, they have now resolved themselves to follow Jesus Christ no matter what in a world that is hostile towards faith in Christ. And so I want us to pay attention in these last few verses. Let's see how Peter gives counsel to the believers, not on how to live a long and prosperous life, but rather on how to live a faithful life in the days that they have been given. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn with me and join me in 1 Peter chapter 5. We will begin uh, in verse 8. And once you have found your place, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. His closing words, Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, in these final remarks to the church, after encouraging the church throughout his letter, after calling the church to remain faithful to Jesus Christ through Christian conduct, then writing to the elders on faithfulness and leadership, and now calling the church to be humble and to remain humble, Peter now writes one more time to encourage the church through what we are going to call today his closing counsel. So the question that we seek to answer this morning is what is Peter's closing counsel for the persecuted church? What are the things that the church needed to hear, needed to be encouraged by as Peter was wrapping up his first letter? Well, notice that Peter begins in verse 8 by encouraging the church to be watchful. Notice that Peter opens by reminding the church that a truly evil foe now stands behind our visible enemies. Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Notice what Peter is telling the church here. He is saying the devil, the deceiver, the accuser is prowling around. It is the devil who is hungry. It is the devil who has been wounded by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's walking around stalking like a hungry, wounded lion looking for someone to attack. Peter has warned the exiles that the devil is very dangerous. Now, this is a good word for us today because we have now made two mistakes in modern day in terms of our own thoughts about the devil. First, we believe that the devil is all-powerful. There are Christians who believe that the devil is all-knowing, that the devil is all-present like God, as if he were God or a God. But the reality is that is not true. In fact, Scripture speaks against that. At the same time, in our society today, in our world, particularly in our media, we've now treated the devil as if he is some sort of flippant, trivial cartoon character. In fact, there are several things that we now see that have actually made the devil a good guy, but the reality is he is not, and scripture speaks to that as well. You see, just like in Peter's day, we need to realize that the devil is seeking to tempt. It is the devil who is seeking to entice people into sin. That's why Peter calls the church to be sober-minded or be watchful. You see, Peter wanted the church to remember that the devil seeks to make anything bigger than God in our lives. It is the devil who seeks to tempt us to doubt our standing with God. It is the devil who attempts to convince us to adopt alternative lifestyles where the lines of truth are now blurred. So if you begin to put these together, thinking of things that have been in our lives that have become bigger than God, thinking upon the things that have tempted us to doubt, thinking us to think on the things that have convinced us to adopt alternative lifestyles, when you begin to put this picture together, doesn't this sound strangely to familiar to what it is we are seeing in our world today? Notice how many lines have been blurred. Notice the divisiveness that has now happened because of the things that we have now made our idols. Now you may be immune to that and think, I don't know what you're talking about. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then I would add to that and stay off social media, don't you know? I mean, you literally can go on social media just in this week alone. And it's not only the world attacking the church and the church attacking the world, but we've got Christians right now attacking each other. Let me tell you what I know to be true of heaven. There's not going to be any divisiveness in heaven. There will not be any walls of separation in heaven. We will be unified. And if you say that's not true, then let me share with you, brother and sister, in great concern, you may not be there if there is division. You see, coming back to our text, Peter says to the exiles, stand guard because your enemy is real. Pay attention because the enemy, the devil himself, is lurking. He is seeking to drag you and to drag me away from what it is that we know to be true. So Christian, hear Peter's first word this morning when he says to be on guard, for temptations are all around. Peter says to us, listen, the world isn't just seeking to rewrite history, rather it is seeking to rewrite truth. And the problem, like the word of God says, is that the battle is not with the flesh and blood of this world, but rather against the rulers of this present darkness. Paul warns us of this in Ephesians chapter 6. This leads to Peter's second point in terms of his closing counsel to the church. He not only tells the church to be watchful, but then he says to them in verse 9, and then this is where the encouragement begins to come in for Peter. He says, that, he says this in verse 9, he says, You are not alone. Notice how Peter picks up in the text. He talks about the devil. Resist him firm in your faith, the him being the devil. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Notice here in the text that Peter calls the exiles to stand firm in the faith. He calls them to stand firm on the truth that is the word of God. Why? Because the reality is temptation will intensify the longer we resist it. However, The more we resist temptation, according to the word of God, it will get easier as we continue to resist the temptation to sin. So will it be hard at first? Yes. But as we continue to resist, will it get easier? Yes. I mean, think of it this way. It's almost like training for a marathon. I don't know why you would do that, by the way, but if you've done it, You know what I'm talking about. No one wakes up one morning and decides, today I'm going to run 26 miles after eating a chocolate cake the night before. It doesn't happen that way. Nobody does that. People have attempted and they've passed out. You guys know me. I'm running a mile and I'm questioning life's truths at that point. Okay? It takes training. There are are plans. Even to run a 5K right now, there are plans that you can do. There are apps, and it tells you what you need to do each and every day. You see, it's not easy to start something. It's not easy to, to start a new job in a new field that you've never been in before. But over time, as you continue to practice, you eventually get better. In fact, it's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 that says to us that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Even the word of God tells us something new is not going to be easy. Discipline is not easy, but over time it will produce fruit of righteousness for those who have been, and I would circle the word, trained by it. In fact, I would come back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and notice the command that Peter gives to the church. He says, resist him. Going back to the first thing he says right here in verse 9. Resist him. Again, the him being the devil. Now notice this. This is actually the same words that James gives to the church in James chapter 4 verse 7 when he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. However, what's interesting to note is that when you look at Peter's passage, the command to resist him actually comes with the plural form of the word you. So notice what Peter is saying to the church. He's saying as a church, we are called to collectively strive together in living faithfully for the Lord and thus living faithfully free from sin. Meaning this, that as a body of believers, we are called to be together not just for the purpose of worship and prayer. In the study of the word, we're called to be together for the purpose of accountability. We're called to be together for the purpose of seeking out accountability with our faith family to to help us, to walk alongside us, to help us overcome the struggles that we may face. Because the reality is this, we were not meant to fight our battles alone. You don't believe me. Look through Scripture. You see, here's a, here's a, here's a problem that we have. We, we underestimate the power of the devil if we think that we can face him alone. Look through Scriptures and ask yourself, how did that work out for individuals apart from Jesus Christ? It didn't. So again, before we look at our problems and blame someone else, before we look at our problems and we begin to to blame the church or, or the lack of the church for stepping in, we need to realize as individuals that we are the ones who are responsible for recognizing our own areas of weakness. However, at the same time, it's in those moments of weakness that we need to realize that we are not alone. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are all around us who may or may not have walked that road before. And if they haven't, or they have, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are ready to walk beside us in what it is that we're going through. They're ready to pray with us, not judge us, but rather hold us accountable according to the truth of the word of God. But then notice what Peter does in the text. He's actually going to double down on this truth in talking about how we are not alone when he writes about Christian solidarity that we now experience as being a part of the local body of believers. He says, again, verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, since we are facing the same kind of troubles as other brothers and as other sisters in the world, we should be more firm in our strength to resist temptation. Because the reality is we're not the only ones being tempted. There are others out there. So Christian, can I say to you this morning, as you experience temptation, as you experience suffering, as you struggle with your own shortcomings, as you struggle with your own sin, can you just hear this word of Peter as a word of encouragement when he says to you that you are not alone in what it is that you're going through? There are other brothers and sisters experiencing the very same thing. There are people all around you. Peter telling the church, there are people all around you who are ready and willing to pray with you. They are ready and willing to help in any way they can. So you see, accountability is meant to encourage the body to grow. Not meant to drag the body down. So can I say something to you as individual believers in Christ? Don't allow your pride to keep you from seeking the prayers and the accountability accountability that you need from the local church. Don't do it. Be a part of it. Be a part of that family. Share and grow together. This leads to Peter's third point, where Peter tells us not only should we be watchful, not only should we know that we are not alone. But then Peter says this in verse 10 and 11. He says this, eternal glory awaits. I mean, what a great line. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if I could set my alarm clock every morning and it just simply said to me, wake up, pastor, eternal glory awaits, I'm ready to rock. I don't need coffee at that point. I don't even need a hello. It doesn't matter what horrible emails waiting on me. It would not matter. I mean, could you just imagine how good that would feel? I mean, that would just be wonderful. I mean, it really sounds like a a great line from an epic movie if you think about it, doesn't it? But notice here in the text, Peter writes now about the assurance that our lives now rest in God's grace and rests in God's power. In verse 10, he says, and after you have suffered a little while, underline that, the God of all grace, who has called you, circle called, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, underline that phrase, will himself, and then here's the key, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Notice what Peter is reminding the church of again. It's the same theme that he gave the church back in 1 Peter chapter two. He tells them, suffering comes before glory. But notice he also encourages the church. By saying that the one who is the giver of all grace is the same one who will call us to eternal glory with him. So as a church today, we need to see that suffering will come for all of us. Again, this was the reminder going back to 1 Peter chapter 2. But that suffering will only last a little while as the Lord strengthens and restores us for the eternal glory that is to come. You see, as Christians today, this is why we should never lose hope. We should never lose hope in what is going on because we know that glory is coming. When we all of a sudden lose our jobs and we don't know what tomorrow holds, we know the one who holds it. And we know that eternal glory is coming. We may be suffering today, maybe not because of our faith, but because of some sort of diagnosis or some sort of illness that's going on. And and maybe we've been told that our days are limited, but here's the reality, that's okay. Because eternal glory is coming. Our days may end this afternoon. And as a Christian, Peter would say to us today, that is okay. Because if our days end in this very moment, then eternal glory has come. Praise be to God. But notice coming back to the text, Peter now introduces us as if that wasn't enough. Talking about the eternal glory that is found in Christ Jesus. He then introduces us the four synonymous verbs that are written in the future tense to help remind God's people of God's promise to his people. He says, it is the Lord who will restore. It is the Lord who will confirm. It is the Lord who will strengthen. It is the Lord who will establish you. Do you see what Peter is saying to the church? He's saying, listen, because of our union with Jesus Christ, God's eternal power has now restored us back to right standing with him. So that we can always say that we, as believers in Christ, hoping in the future of his glory, can look forward to the glory that is to come. And that is the promise that we have as believers today. It doesn't matter what we're going through. Eternal glory awaits. You see, i gotta, I got to ask you something. And and I, maybe I'm asking the wrong people. Maybe I should have been asking all those arguments I was seeing online. But this is the question I have. Do we realize as Christians today that there is a day coming where God will set creation right? Do we realize that day is coming? Do we realize that there's a day coming where sin will be removed? Do we realize that a day is coming where suffering will come to an end? Do we realize that a day is coming where along with creation, we will be restored to the way God intended all things to be? And what a day that is going to be. So I gotta ask you today as believers in Christ, knowing knowing what is to come, what. Should our response to God be for that? Well, Peter actually answers that question in verse 11 when he says this, of God. He says, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Notice what Peter does in the midst of suffering, knowing that his suffering was now coming. It is Peter who turns his attention back to God in writing to the exiles and he praises God because he knows that God himself can do all that he wills. It is God himself who can do all that he pleases and it's God himself who can do all that he promises according to his power. But yet at the same time, In the midst of Peter's praise, we see that we ourselves are flawed. And yet we ourselves can do nothing apart from the will and the authority of God. All things happen according to the will of God. So Christian, we have to ask ourselves this morning, do we realize That our affliction in this moment will only last for a moment? Do we realize that whatever the heartache is, whatever the suffering is, whatever the frustration is, whatever the confusion is, all of this will only last for a moment in comparison to eternity with Jesus Christ our Lord? Do we see that it's God's eternal glory that awaits us? So, as Peter shared with the exiles, We share today in this word, Christian, do not lose hope. Do not lose hope because God is the one who is still in charge. Do not lose hope because God is the one who still has dominion over all things. And it is God who will fulfill his promises of one day bringing us into his glory. Praise be to God. This leads to Peter's fourth and final point from the text that we see in verses 12 through 14. Peter After telling us to be watchful, Peter, after saying to us that uh, not only should we be watchful, but that we are not alone, then reminds us that eternal glory awaits, now says to us, finally, as believers in Christ, let us lift one another up in love and in peace. Notice here in verse 12 that Peter introduces us to a new character. He says, by Silvanus, the faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, the name Silvanus, just so we know, is probably believed to be Silas by many scholars. In fact, it's the same Silas that was mentioned 17 times between Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 18. This can also be confirmed in the Greek because we see that Silas and Silvanus are actually interchangeable names similar to to calling Peter Pete, if you will. But in saying by Silvanus, Peter is now acknowledging that Silas, Silas was either the scribe or more likely that it was Silas who was the one that was delivering the letter. Now this would make sense because it was Silas who was appointed by the Jerusalem council to deliver a letter to the church back in Acts chapter 15. Either way. What we know is that this person is a faithful brother. Peter then talks about the true grace of God. In other words, in this moment, Peter is now sharing that this letter from start to finish is truly an act of God's grace. And it's within this letter that Peter not only declares God's election, which is found in salvation through Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, but then he closes the letter by sharing of the eternal promise that we now have in God's glory. So. This truth in grace that Peter is speaking of is the gospel itself. Which is why Peter says to the church, stand firm in it. The it being the gospel. You see, church, that's our calling today. Is to stand firm in the gospel. From there, he writes in verse 13, he says, she who is at Babylon. Now, this is not actually Babylon itself, but rather a reference to the church in Rome where Peter is now writing from. So notice what Peter is doing. In his closing greeting, he is now affirming what what he said earlier when he said, Christians, you are not alone. And he does this by reminding the exiles uh, that they are not alone in their struggle, that there are other churches who now stand with them, who are still fighting the good fight of faith as they are. And then Peter in verse 14 Calls the church to stay together. So notice, after introducing them to a faithful brother, after affirming the fact that they are not alone, other churches are struggling as well, he now gets to verse 14 and he says, Church, stay together. And this is how he tells it to them. He says, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Okay. Let's talk about this one before we all get carried away for a moment. All right. I've heard a lot of people try to interpret this passage in a lot of ways. All right, so let me tell you how this breaks down. Now, I'm going to tell you, as a college student, I was in a Bible study that met in our town home, and we actually studied through First Peter together, and we got to this passage, and I had a roommate read this passage, and he stopped there, didn't get to the peace part, he stopped at the kiss part, and he said, well, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And then the brother started walking around and kissing the other brothers, okay, on the cheek, all right? That was his thing, kind of weird. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, as he was walking through kissing the brothers, thankfully, by God's grace, he started on the other side of the room, and it was in that moment that I had two choices, and it was either to stiff-arm that brother across Athens, or it was to stop and maybe consider that we should probably do a more in-depth Bible study on what Peter was talking about in this moment. Thankfully, by God's grace, the latter one out. So here we go. What is this kiss of love? This is actually a ritual of touching cheeks together, given from man to man or woman to woman, never man to woman. It was, a, it was a greeting or a closing, if you will, of close friends and family, meant to symbolize kinship, symbolize affection towards one another. So notice what Peter is saying when he says to greet one another with a kiss of love. What Peter is saying is that there should be an emphasis on, on affection, an emphasis on love within the house of God. You see, love is our main action. It is love that is our sign of solidarity. It is the love of God that is found through the salvation, that is found through Jesus Christ our Lord, that has now brought us together. And so Peter is saying, love one another in the same way. Show affection to one another in the same way. Now, again, if you're not a huggy, cheek-to-cheek kind of person, that's okay. I'm not saying you got to do that today. But what I am saying is this. As churches in Western society, we need to do a better job of loving one another. We need to do a better job of showing affection. In fact, this is not a novel concept for Peter. If you go back and look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Notice that the love that Peter is speaking of reveals a sense of identity that is now found in the shared life of believers. Again, Peter has just given us another example that as Christians, we are not called to walk this world alone, nor are we called to sit and wait for someone to connect with us and and just wait and hope that someone will connect with us and reach out to us. You see, as Christians, seeking to be affectionate towards one another as christians seeking to love one another we us we have to be the ones reaching out all of us together now let me let me unpack what i'm talking about okay if you can say this morning that i don't feel like i'm connecting with the local church here anymore i want to tell you two things one you may be right you may very well be right because I'm going to go ahead and be honest with you. I don't know if we or many churches around us are actually lifting one another up well as a church. I don't know how well we're doing at being affectionate towards one another. I don't know how well we're doing at sharing love towards one another. Now, I will say this, based on what I've seen this past week, we're doing a great job of tearing one another down. However, I want to ask you a question if that's you this morning. One, you may be right, but here's my question. If you can say this morning that I don't feel like I'm connecting to anyone through my local church, then here's my question. Who are you reaching out to? Who are you reaching out to? Because if you're just sitting back waiting, if you're just sitting back testing the church, hoping that someone will come talk to you, hoping that someone will come speak to you, hoping that someone will greet you with a holy kiss, then I have to ask you, are you being faithful to the call of what it means to be a part of the local body of believers? We're not called to be passive believers. We're called to be active in our faith. You'll be like, pastor, where do you see that in the Bible? Oh, I don't know. Matthew 18, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 20. Hebrews chapter 10, 1 Corinthians, all of it. Colossians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 4. And yes, I skipped a lot of other books. It's there. And the truth is, none of these passages ever talk about being a passive believer in the local church. You see, it's on us. It's on us to do what Peter commanded us to do in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he said, Love one another earnestly it's on us coming back to the text peter then closes by passing the peace he says peace to all of you who are in christ now again not to labor a point that we've already discussed at length but i think it's beautiful that peter's letter ends the same way it began in chapter 1 verse 2 when he said may grace and peace be multiplied to you you see as we have already stated before peter Understood the grace of God. Remember, it was Peter who denied Christ, and yet it was Christ who restored Peter. Peter knew full well the meaning of the grace of God, which means he also knew full well the meaning of the peace of God. You see, I think if Peter were here today, he'd probably say to us, Church, listen, the road to peace is paved by God's grace. And it's at this point, Peter has now concluded his letter. And in his conclusion, he's left the exiles with the gift of God's peace. You see, in these final words, not only does Peter circle back to where it all began, which was peace itself, a call to love one another earnestly. And and he he wasn't just dictating this to the church. He was encouraging the church with this. But we see that even in the midst of his closing points, he's still calling the church to holiness that is grounded and rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So notice this, in pursuit of holiness, Peter calls the church to be watchful. In pursuit of holiness, he says to the church, you are not alone. in in hope for the holiness that is growing within us and to come. He says, church, listen, know this, that eternal glory awaits you. And in that same pursuit of holiness, he says to the church, with that future in mind, lift one another up in love and lift one another up in peace. You see, these weren't just marks for individuals to practice, but rather these were words of encouragement written for the entire persecuted church. So as Christ's church today, my prayer is that we would stand firm in God's grace, that we would rest in the peace given to us by Jesus Christ, because this is what Peter teaches in his closing counsel to the church. Thanks be to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray together.